Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, uh, Nationalism is Discontent, Part 3, and our somewhat simplified number system. Um, I think we're going to stay on nationalism for a bit, so people can be content with nationalism for a while. Something tells me, looking at uh, and reading the financial press, that uh, debt crisis series might come back pretty soon, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, um... I, uh, you know, those two things are intimately related in some ways because debt crises tend to be national affairs. Um, we were talking today about how to approach this one, and I had a series way back. Uh, it was a Nailing It Down co-production um, with Jean Bajalon, who's a scholar on Turkish nationalism. And we were going through the different books of left-wing theories with uh, Deep State Cuba on the left-wing theories of national consolidation that were not the classical ones, right? They weren't the ones that we were talking about with Otto Bauer and Panacook and Lenin. Um, I've been going back and reading early Panacook and, and his breakdowns with, say, Otto Bauer. Um, and... I, I realized in discussing that, that in some ways, you know, reading the Council of Communist Tradition is helpful because they predict certain things that other Marxists, frankly, uh, miss. Um, but... Uh, I don't know it at... Uh, if at this late date we need to uh, explain who Anton Panikok is, perhaps yeah. we should. I feel like the last episode that we did, there was some question in the comments of like said that things were a little bit over their heads. So Panikok, for people who don't know, was a um, became a Dutch council communist. Um, actually helped to originate the conception of that, coming out of various uh, revolutions of the late in the early twentieth century. Uh, went on to form the KADP, was it? Or he was a founding member, had a lot of disagreements with Lenin, was one of the people who Lenin was writing about in uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, and became sort of the theoretical uh, standard bearer for the councilists uh, moving through the, the 20th century. Uh, is that an adequate uh, depiction of him? Yeah, I, I think... Um... He he is both famous for opposing Lenin later, but also for Lenin disagreeing with him on on the nature of the nation and the nation state, but agreeing with him on the na of the nature of the state in general. And people often actually forget this, but for all of Lenin's like relationship to Kalski, he actually sided with Panacook in the in the debates on the nature of the state and state revolution anyway. Uh, he was not inclined to initially, but when he sat down and wrote State and Revolution, he ended up at least partially agreeing with Panacook. Um the the Dutch Council Communist tradition gets more and more complicated over time because it it tends to be almost completely abstentionist, meaning that they didn't want to work with existing institutions unless they were controlled by communist um, and by communist workers, not just communist in a party sense. And they were also opposed to working with parties at all, uh, but they also were opposed to working with, you know, um, syndicalist or business unions. Um, Etc. 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 And for this, they, if I recall correctly, they made a uh, historicist argument, right? Like mm -hmm. the the great era of the the bourgeois revolutions of the 19th century, and the use of parliamentarianism and um, and uh, trade unionism, uh, non-communist trade unionism. They argue runs up, it wrecks itself on the shoals of the Second World War, essentially, and so uh, councilism becomes dissident when you could say a family argument after the Bolshevik revolution within the third international uh, turns into 
as um, the Comintern more and more subordinates, um, especially after the failure of the German Revolution, uh, subordinates um, Western European and other communist parties to uh, a particular Moscow line. Councilism, and as we know later, uh, Bordigism, left communism, becomes a dissident tradition, which kind of, you know, as much as I think we're both sympathetic with it, uh, except in some cases in the mid 20th century and maybe a little bit towards the end, the sort of like social basis for councilism uh, recedes as the idea of the Soviet or as the practical reality of the Soviet uh, is denuded, not just in the Soviet Union, but also as revolutions started to express themselves differently through the 20th century. Basically, and this is an irony that we have to deal with, um, and it's an irony that someone like Murray Bookchin actually points out with the problem with both social democracy and Marxist-Leninism when he was writing about it in the 80s, uh, in the 70s and 80s, is that increasingly what it looks like with social democ democracy and then developmentalist Marxist-Leninism, now it's actually different in the USSR itself, um, end up doing is rationalizing uh, kind of hybrid economies that are kind of between um, developmental stages into a capitalist one. Um, that's that's the Mary Bookchin kind of municipalist argument. I mean, he's got other stuff he throws in there that aren't so much relevant to us. Um, that's, to me, a descendant of the councilist argument, even though councilists were not anarchists. Um, but you are right that once the Soviets were not successful in Germany and subordinated to the party state after 1921, after the Red Terror and the Civil War in, in Russia. Um, and the idea of the party state as opposed to the council state becomes kind of dominant. Councilism becomes more and more dissident. Although we have to remember that it was dissident pretty early on because left-wing communism and infantile disorder is not a late text. Now, what's it, 2021? Yeah. Or is it 19, 1919? It's early. I mean, I think that, you know, the the reason why anarchists are sympathetic with um, with that tradition, one of the reasons anyways, is that one of the things that Panacoke rejected, as I understand, was the exclusion of anarchists from the Second International, or at least certain uh, anarcho-syndicalists anyways. Yeah, he 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 thought the he thought that the split of the international and second international was a mistake. Uh, he seems to also have thought that about the third international as well. Um, and for all the broadness and and ways in which the second international tradition could have been uh, would always be hostile to 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 council communism the early bolshevik program the 1918 program the the abc's of communism program wasn't that far from the councilist program but the 21 conditions that are attached to it uh made it impossible for councilists to sign on to anyway and so i think uh, the first coleman turn international meeting uh, Panacoke and company were there as like an, in an observer's capacity, but they Correct. were eventually expelled because they could, they wouldn't sign on to the 21 points, I guess with, without getting bogged down in the details of like early 20th century revolutionaries, uh, explain what, what are the similarities between the way that Panacoke understands, uh, the capitalist state and the way that Lenin does and, and where they agree and where they well, differ. Well, the, the similarities is they think that state is necessarily a class organ, not just a capitalist state, that all states are necessarily a class organ. That there will be something like a state in a transition um, to to socialism. So they're, they do, neither one of them are immediatist, and that thus separates them from anarchists. However, um, the difference becomes, A, how long do you think it's going to be before you establish um, an alternative. And B, uh, Leninism really insists on national autonomy and national self-development. And Panacook basically very early on goes, there's no easy way to figure that out. 
there's no way to figure out what is a legitimate nation and what is not without just arbitrary power being involved, basically. Um, you know, you talk about us as historic peoples or whatever. Um, and one of the things that that Lenin does multiple times, he does the state revolution too, is kind of shrug off Aunt, uh, Panacook and Luxembourg's critique because they're from non-historical nations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the irony there, though, is like, according to Ingalls, the entire Slav world was non-historical. Yeah, right? non-historical like, peoples, yeah. Early Ingalls, anyway. Yeah. Early Ingalls to mid-period Ingalls very much kind of believes in... I mean, basically European chauvinism. I, I, I like tote court caught from from Hegel and the German nationalist movement. It it declines precipitously. I think particularly in Marx, but I think there's a good argument that it declines in Ingalls too. Over the end of the of the 19th century, um, by Marx we have proof of it in the ethnological notebooks. So. He moves away from all that. Uh, in in Ingalls, there seems to be a struggling with it. Um, but it is true that, like, Leninism, like, rejected a lot of the early Marx and Ingalls framework as chauvinistic and jingoistic, but it did kind of keep this idea that, like, you needed big nations and big national groupings to be valid. But exactly what the cutoff was, they never actually figured that out. I mean, the the one of the biggest debates was whether or not the Jews counted, and it was about mm-hmm. arguments with the Bund. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in general, for example, as I pointed out last time, Palestinian nationalism wouldn't have made sense to 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 Lenin, he would have seen that as like bizarre um that the palestinians are really part of a greater arab nationalism that should include all of the levant um not just a subset because there wasn't this idea of oppositions creating new national formations which is something otto bauer actually did sort of see Uh, all right let's Let's expand on that opposition to what, colonialism. Is... Yeah, that that some national national subjects become national subjects because they are colonialized. We talked about this last time. You know, when we said that national subject formation is always ugly. Well, the the one way is colonizing other peoples uh, and forcing them into your into your national identity, such as the the English unifying this, the, the five kingdoms of England and mercy and identity. And like, uh, and we're not even getting to like Wales, Scotland, et cetera, but, but Cornwall for that matter, Cornwall, Dorset. And these were dialects of, of the language that were so different. They might as well have been different languages. Yeah. Um, and there, it still shows up today, like English diversity. I mean, and that, I mean, the diversity of the English language in rural England is greater than in rural United States. And the language diversity in, in the United States is greater than people tend to think. Mm. So it's... What's that old book, uh, Albion Seed, about right. different uh, various uh, rural and, uh, and rural folkways in the, what, what would it be, the 17th, 18th century, reflecting themselves in American culture and like the, the Northeast and New England and the Atlantic seaboard and the Scots-Irish right. South. Yeah, I mean, like you think about the Scotch Irish South, um, uh, what we think of as a southern accent is a mixture of African with uh, northeastern, uh, northwestern English and Scotch Irish speech patterns, mm-hmm. and that's reflected in both black and white dialects with some with some variation, uh, with some of the particularities to the black dialects being slightly more similar to West African language patterns but that you see it in both and there's also cross contamination in both which is why I like talking about like cultural appropriation of y'all is just linguistically <laughs> stupid yeah. um uh you know like it that's actually that's actually an english uh, a northeastern english formation that was proper mm. english at one time and actually its association with southern losers and ra- and and black people 
uh, simultaneously led it to be stigmatized. As a Look, it's person. it's not their their fault that there's no uh, second person plural really, or at least no no agreement uh, on what that, that should be. There was a second person plural when the South lost the Civil War and... It was you and thou, right? Uh, was it, yeah. Was it yeah, you and yeah. thou? And then it's you all. You all, yeah. Um, and you Where all, I'm from, it's yous, but, you know. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's German. And that's actually true in Northern Appalachian. But, you know, this linguistic stuff gets into the problem pretty quickly, right? Even with us in the United States, you know, you'll hear people try to talk about like the seven organic nations, you know, the kind of bourgeois base that this was popular amongst liberals. They were, you know, the Tidewater versus the Appalachian Scotch Irish mm. versus the versus the Southwest. Uh, it was weirdly kind of even though liberals were pushing it, it was like actually partially arguing genetic arguments about like the nature of the Scotch Irish. I'm like, you guys can't see how weirdly racialist. When was racial this? When, when did this, this is like the 2000? This is like the end of the Obama administration. Oh, oh, as as we're trying to continue to have our sort of like national struggle with the continuation of social divisions when Obama was supposed to have transcended those no no right. red states, no blue states. Right. So this idea of like, well, some of this is explainable to national character within the United States mm. um, and that there are seven nations and that, for example, uh, both Cascadia in Canada and the U.S. and um, and New England slash the Maritimes in Canada were basically actually nationally culturally contiguous well, as, I, I think that's some truth to that actually but as we know if you look at who drops the post-vocalic is that what it is uh r right the the northeast of the united states by those terms can claim charleston south carolina and also new orleans so you guys are part of our we're gonna have little exclaves down there the charleston brogue was famously like a um a uh, like in, in the trading port there was a, a, a bespoke accent there that was more similar to Boston than it was to the surrounding area, which again undermines this. There's there's as much as a rural urban divide and as much of like a cosmopolitan seaboard divide versus like an interior sack of potatoes vibe as there is probably more so even than there is genetic or right. Or uh, well, for example, the generic southern accent mixed with a generic midwestern accent is now a generic blue collar accent. Right. If you're not in a city. Like people in in rural Utah sound more like people in rural Georgia now than they did 50 years ago. Mm. Uh, but there's a class distinction that's based on the rural urban divide in our language. And so but my point about this mutually mutually constitutive op you know opposition is that Palestinian nationalism is created by by settler colonialism explicitly, um, and explicitly by Jewish settler colonialism because the difference between a Palestinian and a Maserati Jew, uh, Jew is religion, genetics, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and Palestinian is a national division that is that. You know, if if you listen to early Hamas, it's religious. If you listen to late Hamas, it's not. Um, and, you know, there's folk ways, but there isn't actually a contiguous language tradition or anything like that. And, and, and in fact, the West Bank and Gaza are also very different cultures. Right. Um, you have far more Egyptian influence in, in Gaza in the south. And then obviously the West Bank would have more Jordanian and I guess Levantine influences. Um Although, again, genetically speaking, um, the 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 Eastern North African and the Levant are one genetic peoples to, with mm. with a ton of genetic diversity. And like um, everywhere, there's a, uh, a a linguistic continuum, right? That runs right. all the way from, I would I guess from what uh, Turkey all the way to the to the Maghreb, right? And well. Further. I, I mean, Turkey is also not even uh, oh Arabic language. Yeah, um, of course. I meant, I guess, I mean from Syria. Yeah, from or you Syria. could say Iraq on down. Yeah. Yeah, Iraq, uh, uh, with the, with the exception of Kurdish, which is a which is a Persian related language, and actually, according to Jean Bajalon, languages that they're mm. not always mutually con 
um, un- understandable. And and this really shows the problem in the Middle East uh, and the problem of bourgeois nationalism in general. I mean, we talked about the tragedy of the Middle East is because like there's a bunch of things you have to deal with when you talk about the Middle East. One, its economy is not properly speaking a bourgeois economy in the way we think about it. It's an extractive economy that participates in the bourgeois world. Mm. But like massive amounts of the Lebanese and the Palestinians are never been proletarianized. Mm. They are, they are, they are lumpenized. And, and I mean that literally they were peasants for the most part under the Ottoman satrapy system uh, and, and merchants. And then they are shut out uh, of work or in the case of like the Lebanese, uh, their economy is basically like half from petite bourgeois remittances back into Lebanon from other countries. It's not even, um, so this idea of like a national proletariat and a national bourgeoisie in, in the Levant, it doesn't really hold. Um, let's, let's interrogate this more because you have, as I understand it, like a very advanced uh, merchant class right through the course of the Ottoman Empire, Gaza being one of its main uh, nodes of trade, obviously also to uh, Beirut being a huge trading city, um, yep. parts of Syria and Egypt and Iraq as well. So through what, the 19th century, you're saying that while burgers exist, you don't there is no bourgeois society or you're saying that there's that capitalism is, is unformed through this period. I'm saying you had the beginnings of bourgeois society in the way that you had in say like Italy in the 14th century. But what you hmm. do not have is you don't have proletarians. Mm-hmm. You don't like, like there's not. And by that, I mean, there's not a class of people who primarily or there's not a large class of people who primarily make their living as wage labor. They're either petite bourgeois or they are peasants. And as we all know, and which has also plagued Marxists for a long time, the peasant and the petite bourgeois person, that distinction is a spectrum that is real hard to actually parse. Mm. Um. Plus, there's the other tendency that we inherit from both the the second the second internationalist and the Bolsheviks to call everything we don't like petite bourgeois, even when it's not <laughs> right. I, um, guess, I guess I'm struggling, uh, not struggling with, but I'm interested in this question because uh, I was the, I finished the job I was on finally, and mm-hmm. blessedly or unblessedly, because I ended up getting hurt at the end. I was able to work by myself for like a week or so. And I, so I listened to a lot of podcasts, which I hadn't done in a while. And Sublation, uh, Douglas Lane had on uh, Fakhri al-Sardawi. Uh, and one of the arguments that he made, which is an interesting one, is that the reason why the Israelis couldn't completely liquidate um, Palestinian society or Palestinian national aspirations is because the Israelis, the Israeli settler colonialism encountered a people's going through the process of bourgeois social formation and modernization into national formation, as opposed to say what um, Great Britain does in in South Africa, uh, what uh, colonists do in the United States confronting the native peoples here. By the time the um, Israeli settlers get there by the mid 20th century, you already have the rudiments of a bourgeois society such that it can't be liberate, uh, liquidated on the same terms as other settler colonial projects. I would say yes and no. So, and by that, I mean, you have the same problem that you have in Italy. If you want to place the beginnings of capitalism in Italy, you can in the, in the merchant nations, in the merchant uh, city states, which are basically many nation states, actually. Um, but you have a problem. And the problem is you don't have the development of a mass proletariat in any of those areas. And this is like the part of the equation that people like scholar, uh, uh, Jarius, Banerjee, et cetera, like don't want to deal with because it, it like actually 
it, it, it breaks down Marx's categories a little bit because mm. Marx, on one hand, clearly is using England as his model for development and the conditions that he sees in England, you know, are also the conditions that he sees more maturely in France. Uh, on the other hand, because of the abolition of serfdom and a few other things, Marx actually offhands in a few footnotes, actually throws out that maybe capitalism begins in the Italian city-states. It's like in a footnote, the capital. Um, so... His overall description seems to, as Robert Brennan co point out, seems to ascribe to the English. His actual uh, thoughts seem to have gone flirt with the idea that it's in Italy. But the idea, the the idea that it's in Italy becomes hard to explain because while you have beginnings of bourgeois social formations and thus the beginnings of nationalism, you don't get it. It doesn't happen there. Like, I mean, what what is one of the first concerns of the international? Is Italian nationalism along left wing lines? That's yes. the first, one of the first international's projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Manzini yeah. and Garibaldi and all those folks. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, right? Because I think the the orthodox Marxist argument, right, is that uh, the bourgeoisie throws up these revolutions. They're a reflection of the social basis of society. Obviously, the English in the 17th century and the French in the uh, 18th century. And of course, it is the proletariat itself that has to push this through this this democratic project to generalize and universalize it. Um, otherwise, you're stuck with like, yeah, like a Venetian city state or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if the Middle East. Well, let me let me back up for a second. Were you finished with? with no, what I, you're... I do want to yeah. actually like defend. Please, yeah. uh, the, the guest at Sublation. It's interesting that they had a non-pro-Israeli guest for once. Um, uh, he is a pro-United Nations guest, which is interesting. Yeah. He's uh, he's, uh, he's an interesting character. I think it's the third time he's been on. It's, it's, it's interesting. I haven't been listening to um, Sublation lately, so um, so I'll check it out. But I do think it's defensible, though, that there would have been beginnings of a of a bourgeois class in in Palestine and in the Levant in general um, for two reasons. Um, one, the Ottoman Empire was trying to integrate into Europe and they were trying to modernize the satrapies and increase their trading capacity. And two, merchant patterns in the Levant actually seem to be where uh, the merchant patterns of Italy come from. Mm. So the Islamicate world had had merchants of significant power as a class with certain class standing way earlier than the Europeans did. The, the complications to that are as follows. One, um, the the Ottoman system deliberately also broke class and national lines and inheritance lines to create loyalty to the state explicitly in the Janissary system. Mm -hmm. um, and that, um, you know, if you read someone like Francis Fukuyama, which, I, and I don't mean the end of history book. I mean the origins of political or order and political order and political decay that that two books he wrote he actually makes a good argument about like this as a stabilizing system and why the west took longer to deal with its kinship bond problems now i talk about kinship a lot and how it's good um mm. and i don't mean kinship in the traditional family sense but that that for certain kinds of bureaucratic administrative apparatuses to develop, you actually do have to break up tribal and kinship patterns pretty thoroughly. Mm. Um, and the Ottoman system does this, but it does this in a non-bourgeois way. So you have this burgeoning bourgeoisification, and then you have a check that does not exist in Europe. All right. Um, because the European system um, basically depends on warfare to not have a problem with your aristocrats either going to war with each other or becoming bourgeois. Those are mm -hmm. your options. Um, and, and war is your way around that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so you have a highly volatile system that's highly prone to war. Um, whereas in the Ottoman system and in the Islamicate world in general, there is a tendency towards expansionism. I mean, it, it is it is formally speaking an imperial system. Um, but what it is not is one that that is prone to uh, internal conflicts. And in fact, it's actively setting itself up to make sure they don't happen. So there's a dampener on national subject formation. As we mm. pointed out last time, uh, like Egypt's, you know, Egypt's unifier, for example, Muhammad Ali is Albanian. Mm -hmm. Like the Egyptian national identity does not come from people historically related to the cops or to the, 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 the Masri Levantines. That's, that's Egypt and Arabic, by the way, if people want to know what I'm saying there, um, that it's, that it's coming from an outsider actually, who then appeals to an ancient cultural tradition. Um, we've talked about these problems in China. So in, in Palestine, I think you encounter that, you know, they encounter this with people who've been, who have a strong merchant class who are also dealing with British colonialism, which isn't mm -hmm. settler in this case, mm. um, but it is. And, and French as well. Right. Um, and so they've had to start developing a bourgeois identity in the absence of the Ottomans. They've had a strong merchant class tradition that's much longer than the European one, frankly. And yet, uh, what they don't have from the, from the standpoint of national formation is a separate language dialect that's clear. Yes, Palestinian Arabic is different than other kinds of Arabic, but like Egyptian Arabic is radically different from the North and the South. Like when we talk about mm. Masri Arabic, we're actually talking about Cairo Arabic. Like we're mm. not talking about like like upper, Paris French. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about Upper Egypt Arabic, which has which actually sounds more like say Yemeni Arabic or whatever. Hmm. Um, and for people who don't know, Arabic is not always mutually comprehensible. It's, it's like Chinese. It's one of these languages that has enough differences that, that it's non that they're, that they're, you can't always understand each other at all. If you speak it, Mm. Um, as opposed to the settler colonial languages like French, English, Arabic, to some degree, Mandarin Chinese, um, where those are imposed. And so there's massive variation, but they are usually mutually comprehensible, which is actually not the case for English variants in, in the islands itself, where they were, mm. they were more different. Um, for those of you who think we're getting really obscure here, one of the things that, that make this a problem is that the way we define national identities in the European sense is tied to language. Yes. It's tied to language. Um, and it's Including the Marxist and uh, Leninist and Stalinist definition. Right. I mean, language is actually more than race or biology. The, the 19th century definition, what, what happens in the bourgeois world particularly in after the settler colonial states start being all settler colonial. Um, so if you look at once the Portuguese developed an idea of like color race, then you start seeing people try to see language groups as racial groups. And basically this is a continuous European project by all sides until world war II discredits it because mm -hmm. of the whole um, Aryan myth with the Nazis. Yeah, um, that's one thing. Um, let me just bracket for a second. One thing that we're going to discuss later on in this episode, probably into the bonus, is we're going to talk about the only really internationalism left standing right now in this world of nation states, which is bourgeois internationalism, and how that, um, how that's its contradictions uh, and its conflicts are uh, are evident since the post war period. Right? Um, I guess I have a. An interesting observation, and maybe, and you know a lot more about the Middle East. You've lived in the Middle East. You've studied it a lot. But you mentioned earlier this transition in ideology, uh, stated ideology by Hamas from a movement um, from calling for resistance on sectarian lines or religious lines to now a more traditional nationalist um, call for for liberation uh, by national origin. 
There's an interesting thing that's happening at the same time in the Middle East, and I'm thinking specifically of the axis of resistance, which is that on top, there's a, almost like a post-national sort of dynamic that's happening uh, with all of these different groups, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen, uh, whether it's uh, the various different armed groups, parastate groups in Iran, Iraq, uh, which are affiliated with Iran and obviously Shia Islam, certainly with Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, which it seems to me, while they claim territory, uh, and especially in the case of Hezbollah, uh, they don't actually claim to be the bearer of the of the the entirety of the nation state of all of every, all the people of Lebanon. Instead, it's kind of like a post-national sort of communitarian para-state pseudo-nationalism, where a certain amount of territory is taken, a certain community is protected, self-defended within this without larger aspirations. Is that fair to say? Is, is it that, is fair that to say, yeah. but what does it mean? I guess is another question. It, it means that these pre-modern social formations were not liquidated in the Middle East because of the way, because of when the Islamic empires fell. And because even though the Zaydi Shia, which is where the, which has a special relationship to the Houthi tribe, which is why they're kind of linked together in a separately named, um, uh, liberation movement. Is, a, is interesting to talk about because the Shia claim, unlike the Sunni, to have political and religious leaders that go directly back to the early caliphs. Um, and so the division between the secular and, well, actually not even the early caliphs, I go back to the imams. Um, so the division in the Uma, uh, and man, you want to, sorry guys, if you guys thought the communist stuff got obscure, I'm going to have to explain <laughs> a bunch of, of, uh, so the Uma is the, is the, is the body of the faithful Muslims universally. So, so for example, uh, both early and late Hamas actually give a special place for the Uma in their in their work so like current hamas still does and this, this is one of the other interesting things is like if you read if you read like the charter for hamas from today from like 2017 it reads very lefty mm -hmm. unless you also know muslim terminology and there's parts of it that radically don't um but if you read the early Hamas charter, which was controversial even in Hamas, okay, in, in 1987, not only is it not just aimed at, uh, it's not just aimed at, at Israel, it's aimed at Jews. It, it is an mm. anti-Semitic document. Um, it, it, like, it takes readings of the, uh, the, of the anti-Semitic surahs, which there aren't many, but they are there. Um, in in the Quran and build stuff out of them. They they strip all that out in later revisions. All right, uh, actively. Um, and do they uh, understand our, uh, Palestinian Christians having dimmy status within mm -hmm. their future state? Yeah, and early ones, not now. Okay. So, what that reflects, I think, is um, there is some truth that like they never renounce their early charter, but it's not their active charter, like. So the debate now, you know, amongst people who follow this stuff is, you know, are the revisions sincere? There are reasons in the current one to wonder because there's still some Islamicist language in there, but it's paired with bourgeois nationalist language. Mm -hmm. All right. And, you know, I don't think that should surprise us, even if we think, you know, even if we are like even if we take a completely sincere reading, because it's not like if you read the declaration of independence, there's not still Christendom language in it. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, not to, I'm not in the habit of defending Hamas. I don't particularly think they're a left-wing group, but like, um, I do think there's a point that they basically, they're a religious inspired nationalist movement. Now, when you talk about these parastate communitarian organizations, they only seem weird if you don't, if you're like not viewing them as dissident groups within the largely Sunni Islamicate empires. So these have long histories 
And and this is why they're hard to understand from an American or European progressive or regressive framework because these are these are uh, exclave communities really of like the larger Shia um, minority within a majority Sunni world is what you're arguing, right? And these are not the same kind of Shia. So the the Zaidi Shia are not the same kind of Shia as the Hezbollah. Um, and there is a real sense in which um, there's an order of religious and ethnic tensions that settled colonialism and imperialism from the West actually freezes. Um, and when it breaks down, a la Iraq, mm. it breaks down. Now, I also will say that I don't I don't have a quote orientalist unquote view of this. I don't think this is unique um to the Muslim world. And I would also say, like, you know, any more than like when stuff breaks down in Ireland, Catholics and Protestants kill each other kill each other. You know, like it's uh do Catholics and Protestants inherently kill each other? Probably not. No, it's actually the specific conditions of imperialism in Ireland that prompt it. Um and so, but, and so, we're, you're arguing essentially that, that this is a problem of underdevelopment, not of something inherent to the peoples there, but that this is like uh, these are pre-modern holdovers um, within a aborted modernization project, which you know in the in the 19th and 20th century ends up getting stopped and frozen by various different events, including I, I, Western colonial. Uh, imperialism. I would even say maybe calling it underdevelopment is a little bit misleading because um, that implies a Whiggish view of a development that grants bourgeois legitimacy to it. Mm. I would say we have to look at the, the the fact that these come from different formations that uh, are going to have interesting relationships to modernity. And this isn't the jihad versus Mac world thesis of like just ideological underdevelopment, nor is it even the thesis of like, Oh, if is Islam just modernized, they wouldn't have had this. My, my point is actually, they took a different path of development in the Islamicate world that mm. let some of these prior forms hang around more because they serve social functions and maintain communities in a way that did not conflict with the mode of production predominant in the Islamicate world, which is not, I mean, whatever petty, that is. Petty, petty commodity production, right? Right. Essentially. Yeah. Peasant, but peasant how, production. But how it works has baffled Marxists for forever because it doesn't work like antique tributary states and it doesn't work like European manoralism or feudalism. Um so how does it work? And and I've talked a long time about for Marx until the ethnological books, non-European society was a here be dragons. Mm. You know that they just kind of uh, you've fallen wiped, off the edge of the map, right? That you just kind of wiped away with with Asiatic despotism and didn't really look at. Samir Amin tried to. Um, but he kept on just saying, we just have to call it tributary mode of production and not worry about it. Because, But all that tributary means is that you pay taxes to a to a centralized imperial form, right? Mm. But that flattens out the difference between, like, Islamicate production and, say, Ming, Roman China. Sla- Ming China or Roman slave society. And they yeah. are different. Like, yeah. and that's – so that – and for those of you who are confused by the why, why I say Islamicate – um. It's not. I don't want to say Islamic or Muslim because it's not just Muslim or Islamic, but it is in worlds where Islamic societies were predominant. But it also happens to be non-Islamic groups. So we use the word Islamicate to indicate that we're not just talking about Muslims, but we are talking about people in what is quote the Muslim world unquote and the the specific relations there, which do come out of the antique world. One thing I would say. Uh, if I put on my historiographic hat for a second and people go, this seems very far from nationalism, but it is why it's so hard to talk about nationalism in the Middle East Mm. because it is essentially imposed from a different system um, by colonial powers because the Islamicate world, while there was, while it was not 
ever one Dar Islam that wasn't like there was always different caliphates and whatever, and they were fighting each other, etc. Like that that division happens very quickly and very early. Um, in a way, it's like if Christendom had continued for another. If 1492 wasn't the end of Christendom, mm. right? And the beginning uh, of the West. And the beginning of the West and the idea of nation states and the idea of na and nationalism. That doesn't happen in the same way in the Islamic world. It just mm. doesn't. And so when it does happen, it's because the late Islamic empires collapse in in it in confront and confronting modernity but they collapse really really late yeah and they had not fully integrated in the way that see the austro-hungarian empire had like so you're living in a world that both went on a different trajectory anyway because it had a different way of organizing peasant uh military relations than than europe did um and frankly a much more stable one um and you're dealing with a world that has national identity imposed upon it by colonizers, but then it needs it to fight the colonizers, just like I talk mm. about in Africa. The paradox of Nigerian. There's no Nigerian ethnicity. Like, the Igbo and the, the peoples in the north, they're not the same religion, they don't speak the same languages, they don't share the same tribal history. But their ability to kick the French and the English out is based on national unity and hmm. their ability to get international recognition because under this is the irony to get us to bourgeois internationalism and this maybe was where we split to, to behind the paywall yeah but, that's a good idea but the last thing you want to be in the modern world is a stateless people and a nationless people you do not want to be that you do not want to be a stateless or nationless person like yeah, it leaves you uh, buffeted by the winds of history and by greater greater powers. Um, I wonder, before we go to the other side, I've been reading a bit about uh, early Polish nationalism, which is an interesting one, too, because the uh, Poles have a the second constitutional order ever proclaimed in the in what is in the 1780s. Mm -hmm. They declare a constitution and uh very much inspired, of course, by the United States. And then they're absolutely obliterated. Their entire national culture destroyed. Um, all the divisions of their society end up collapsing on themselves. But this sort of national idea arises, similar to the process you're talking about in the Middle East in the 20th century, arises in opposition to its uh, tripartite partition by the great powers of that era. And so to be Polish for you know, a hundred and something year, almost 200 years becomes a, it is a linguistic group. Um, it is a, a, a national economy to an extent, although the partition of Poland ends up really setting back development of the Polish economy immensely because there's customs borders all of a sudden all over these economic units, but it becomes an aspiration and it becomes something that's built in opposition to Prussian, Austrian, and Russian power. And also, of course, too, interestingly, takes on a uh, religious bent as well, given that uh, one of the great powers that ends up taking Polish territory is, of course, uh, Russian or, or Orthodox Russia versus the largely Catholic Polish people. So I wonder, and the more I read this and uh, and, and read about the, the uh, nationalism of the 18th and 19th and 20th century and the various different ways that the development of a nationalist consciousness and a, a nationalist movement arises, I almost become a nihilist because while we have this abstraction, this, this historical conception of the nation state, which arises historically, comes out of these different um, social processes and dynamics that we understand, um, the ways that nations reach towards that, that peoples reach towards the nation is uh, extremely varied. And it almost leaves you at the point where you want to throw up your hands and say, well, history is too messy to even understand this national process. Except that I suppose Poland finally frees itself in the late 20th century. So now we can retrospectively put the imprimatur on 300 years, 250 years of Polish struggle in a way that maybe we couldn't do it for the Palestinian people because their opposition only starts 50 years ago. Right. 
Although, interestingly, we have to remind ourselves that one of the slights that Lenin makes at Luxembourg is that she's from a non-historical national movement, a.k.a. the Polish. Right. You Which know, is incredible because it, because their bourgeois revolution of the late 18th century and their continuing struggle for freedom throughout the 19th century, national freedom, is really one of the, the great... Um, clarion calls for the for the european bourgeoisie right kosciusko and this like the destruction of poland becomes a like cause celeb and the polish diaspora in london in paris in vienna and elsewhere uh becomes a sort of like state in exile that many other bourgeois revolutionaries from italy france and, uh, and america glom onto as like a sort of er like proto nationalism uh, in the same way that Greek nationalism in like the 18 and the 18 teens and 1820s becomes this sort of like rallying cry around which bourgeois nationalists uh, organize themselves. Absolutely. Although, again, we see the strange ironies of history because remember also that Marx and Engels had celebrated Polish nationalism and condemned Serbian and Pan-Slavic nationalism, um, which later on would be uh, a sticking point for Lenin trying to figure out like trying to to have his cake and eat it too on maintaining the Zimmerwald left position mm. which is anti-nationalist in general revolutionary defeatism does not mean celebrating the other side Lenin was not celebrating Germany in fact Lenin's whole strategy was kind of dependent on the German state failing mm. um so what he needed to happen was both Russia and Germany to lose, uh, not just Russia to lose. And that led him to get into kind of knots because Kalski, for example, even though he opposed the war, would occasionally say, like, well, maybe we should back it because it would help us uh, support Serbian nationalism against the British. And the British is largely obviously the larger imperial power, etc. And this the, if you read the the writings on nationalisms coming out of Lenin in this period, they're turning, they're like really trying hard to figure out how to maintain national autonomy and also not empower other imperial movements anywhere on the, like on the planet, which is something to give Lenin due that you don't see in Leninists today is dropped by Marxist Leninists in the 1940s and fifties, because to bring us back to our starting on council communism a bit, um, that was how they got anything done. They failed at exporting revolution in bourgeois areas, so they started exporting national development to colonialized eras. Uh, and 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 saying that you could skip your own bourgeois period if you followed their model. And what they actually did, you know, and you could see this as a benefit, but like is give a better um bourgeois development pattern than the west because the west was trying to trying to privilege its bourgeois in production whereas the soviets were not mm -hmm. and so you have all these national liberation movements almost none of them end up even nominally socialist outside of east asia right and so but it has the advantage of a uh, as a developmental program of not relying as the United States does on various different petty criminals and what could be called comprador bourgeoisie. And in the case of Vietnam, like Catholic minority ruling class leaders to try to push forward a developmental program, the Soviet model had the advantage that the state then could take on the traditional role, developmental role of the bourgeoisie when that bourgeoisie as America found out was often uninterested in capital accumulation. Right. Um, so th the state could basically do what the state did in the early European cases, which is not what anybody actually promoted. Now, if you want to be cynical about that, this is a way of privileging your own bourgeoisie and inner bourgeois, uh, competition like, um, and the Soviets ironically rationalize and get around that. But what they don't end up doing in most cases is actually exporting any kind of socialist model except in East Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and even there, eventually what you have is rational markets opening up and bourgeoisification 
nominally, and I say nominally, controlled by the state. Um, but that state is actually very much disciplined by the international bourgeoisie. And by the way, that includes the PRC. Mm -hmm. So, like, this idea that because the state can somewhat boss around national um, national bourgeois subjects as some kind of proof that the that the PRC is achieved socialism or whatever. That's a laughable criterion, particularly if you go back and read what Marx and Engels say socialism requires in uh, socialism, utopia and a scientific are in the critique of the Goethe program or in any of those texts. You're like, no, they have not achieved any of that. Mm -hmm. Like, um, even if you think markets are required as a planning mechanism because the computing capacity didn't exist yet, um, which it does now. Mm -hmm. uh, you Cybersyn. Shout out to my Cybersyn bros and broettes. Um, there's still major problems with with what you see today because it's not like the state manages or runs those firms. It's not like it's not like most Chinese workers are technically employees of the state. They're employees of private corporations, which are nominally owned by the state or are co-ops or whatever. And by the way, when people ask me like, Oh, what's the Chinese model for that? There isn't one Chinese model. There's like 80. Right. Yeah. So, that decentralized like, nature for sure. And, right. and, and it's Chuang who points out quite nicely that, that, that is that decentralized, um, uh, aspect of Chinese, not just economy, but also governance is a return to form of what you saw this idea of the Chinese empire as this strong centralized power, which is dictating everything that's happening on the ground, dictating the terms of markets. It's actually small market towns in their surrounding areas, 300, 400, 500 years ago. And over the last 30, 40 years or so within the provincial divisions of communist China, that a lot of the economic and political decisions are made with various experimentations as well. So, we we're we're now uh on china we're we're like we've reached today right we've reached like the the outcome of all these arguments that we talked about earlier today between panacoke and Goethe and lenin uh and also the discussions in the 19th century and the discussions we had last episode about lenin and nationalism we managed to get ourselves back to the present and i think what we all need to admit is the failures of the present uh unless you concede uh, or unless you argue that China is uh, socialist or that there is some socialist content to what's happening in Gaza right now, we're really left floating in the wind at this point in time. Or if you're like Midwestern Marx claiming there's socialist content to the military Keynesian policies of Russia right now. There you go. Many people arguing that as well. We want to step back from that ledge we're on. <laughs> and I think we want to, in the in the second half... Uh, talk about really existing internationalism. We talked about really existing nationalism today. Uh, what really existing internationalism, which is bourgeois internationalism, represented by various different bodies like the United Nations, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, the European Union. Hell, we'll throw SWIFT in there. We can throw in the Bureau for International Settlements. We can throw all sorts of great. You can throw in BRICS, in even though BRICS. it's not even, even though it's not really a formal internationalist body. But yeah. I guess before we close off, the irony right now is we're seeing a regression back to earlier forms of bourgeois nationalism at the same time that we're seeing multiple overlapping and and decrepit bourgeois internationalism, which in some ways is just decadent. It's like in a um, process of decay. Right. And and I I think I'm gonna argue just to give your listeners a hint of where we're going. I recently reread Lennon's, I mean, not Lennon's, um, Ingalls is on authority today, which for something else. And it's, I'm a, normally an Ingalls stan and an Ingalls defender, but that text is actively bad. Uh, but one of the things that it does that's just wrong is it assumes that you're going to see increased centralization, increased internationalization, and increased global monopoly monopolization and centralized production all over the world unilaterally in a linear pattern forever 
Mm. And in fact, that's part of how socialism is going to happen. And uh, that's also his argument against the anarchists, et cetera, because that nece necessitates certain kinds of development. And that's a form of authority and blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a lot of other problems with the argument. But but one of the things that I, that I just keep saying is I'm like, interestingly, in a way that I actually don't think you can accuse Marx himself of. Marx seems to realize that there's counter tendencies in this stuff. That that uh, the centralization of of capital also dialectically and Engels does not deal with this leads to increased fragmentation simultaneously, mm. and that is why we're in this weird period of both multipolar internationalism which means you have a new kind of you have multiple internationalism mosing from the bourgeois world and yet also like national regressive nationalisms of a bourgeois variety emerging seemingly everywhere mm. um and the reasons why uh the anti-colonial ones are probably something that the left hinges on to some of that's moral and that makes sense. And, you know, I think that's probably a wise thing. The genocidal nature of, of national consolidation under capitalism cannot be ignored. Absolutely. Uh, but some of it's also like, these are the areas where we're not seeing regression because it was stalled. And I know this contradicts my, my earlier statement that it's just different, but I mean, from the standpoint of bourgeois development, not from the standpoint of social development in general, um, you have, you know, you have all these nationalisms emerging that are not as as weird and decadent and self contradictory as say American nationalism, which is at war with itself. Mm -hmm. um, Civic versus ethno, right? Yeah, and also like part of American national identity right now is opposing American American national identity, which is which is in and of itself a bizarre contradiction, but it's one that you see in the developed capitalist world all over the place. Mm. Um, whereas uh, in places like Palestine, because of colonialism and imperialism together, and we also need to remind ourselves, those are not always the same thing, mm -hmm. um, that, that it seems to be of a more unitary character, even though we have to deal with the fact there's there's stuff from most leftist positions that would be considered religiously regressive as fuck mm -hmm. um, that that a lot of people just want to ignore. Um, but but despite all that, it seems much more heroic in a cleaner way. And I think that's probably because um, you're at a different phase of developmental cycle. And if the settler colonial presence was gone, and I guess this is my dark inclination here. Uh, other social conflicts would become way more predominant. Like mm -hmm. what unifies people is opposition to something else. Mm -hmm. Like schizogenesis, right? As, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which means, which means the irony of almost all popular national fronts is if you win, you are automatically in a civil war. Right. Like, um, and I don't think people really sit with, I'm not saying that, I don't know that that's inevitable, but I can tell you that historically it's the most likely outcome. Mm. Um, well, we're, we're dark sided, but we're going to the light. We're moving towards the light, which is, uh, the other side of this episode. Uh, if you want to, if you, you're not a patron already of Varn vlog and you want to watch uh, you want to hear us talk, but also watch us just gesticulate, watch our facial movements and things of that sort. Look at the really cool high-vis shirt that I have on right now. Check out Derek Varn's extremely dapper hairdo. Then you can become a patron at uh, patreon.com slash varnblog. Uh, if you're not a patron of the Antifada, you can hear this entire episode over there. So become a patron. But regardless, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.
Hello folks, Sean from the Antifada here announcing a special promotion. This year in 2024, sign up for the Antifada at an annual level of $10 and receive a free copy of the Vortex Group's book on the George Floyd Uprising. Andy will send that right to your door. For on the $5 level for an annual subscription, we'll send you something really nice like a postcard or something like that. We're trying to build the show in this new year, and we appreciate your support as always. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the other side.